You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host Andy Plymer. For someone to explain, bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby, sharing ideas to make the game better. All right, welcome to episode number seventeen of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host Andy Plymer, and joining me today is David Joyce. Uh, David is a sports physiotherapist as well as a cert- certified strength coach. Uh, he has had roles lecturing uh, on the Masters of Strength and Conditioning at Edith Cowan University, as well as the Masters of Sports Physiotherapy course at the University of Bath in the UK. Uh, previously, he was a Chief Physiotherapist and Performance Specialist for the Chinese Olympic team, uh, Head of Athletic Development, uh, Athletic Performance at the Western Force uh, in Super Rugby, and is now the Head of Integrated High Performance Unit at the Greater Western Sydney Giants, which is an Aussie rules team in Australia. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, David. So welcome. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So, um, you know, there's there's some pretty interesting stuff there. Chinese Olympic team, uh, Western Force, uh, now into Aussie rules. Um, and, and obviously your, your academia side there. What, what's kind of been happening in the last decade uh, that, I, that I've missed out there? <laughs> a few books uh, in there too. Yeah, there's a couple of books in there. Um, no, look, that's, that's about it, mate. Look, I, it, it sounds really diverse and I'm lucky enough to be um, the recipient of, of um, some fantastic adventures over the years and I think a lot of that gets down to my, my willingness to, to follow my dream and, um, and to get into and to to have a uh, a girl that will indulge me with, with that, I've got no right to be with, yeah. with, with a girl. But um, uh, yeah, so it's I, I'm lucky that I've 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 got that spirit of adventure. But I've also had people that have allowed me to follow that dream over over the past decade, and um, you know, it's it's kind of got me where I am, um, which is essentially where I started in. Um, uh, so my, my mum and dad live in Canberra in um, in Australia, and the, the the footy club that I work for now is Canberra's team and based in Western Sydney. So um, after spending so much time overseas and and all that sort of stuff, it's it's amazing how how so many people come home to come home to roost over after all that time. So what's what's your like a bit more detail on your role with the Greater Western Western Sydney Giants, a relatively new team. Yeah, um, so this will be our, our fifth year in the competition. Um, I've this will be my second season here. Okay. And um, and I was recruited to to head up the athletic performance unit, which is an integrated interdisciplinary team comprised of uh, sports physiotherapists, um, rehab specialists, um, sports doctors, strength and conditioners sports scientists, psychologists, nutritionists, recovery, um, you know, basically everything outside the football aspect. Wow. And I suppose it's our job to, um, to give training hours back to the coaches and, and really get our team as, as resilient and as physically powerful and, and dominant as, as we can. So we, we work, I've got a team of in excess of 20 people when you count all the, the part-timers as well and we work to to prepare our team each and every week and over the course of the pre-season which we're, we're in the last week of pre-season here Andy and it's, okay. it's, been, it's 
been 20 weeks. Um, oh, wow. It's a, a huge luxury for, for those people that have, you know, worked in the in Europe and, and the like where you might get six weeks if you're lucky. So Yeah. Uh, the guys will be jumping out of their skin ready to go. Oh, can't wait. Yeah, absolutely yeah. can't wait. So we've got a weekend off this week. We've had three um, three of our practice games and um, and the real stuff starts next Saturday at the MCG. So couldn't couldn't be a better venue for it to kick off too. That's great. Yeah, we're we're fortunate to to kick off at the at the home of the game. So yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, so before there you were with the Western Force um, for for quite a bit of time. Um, I, I think what what was your what's a bit of a general kind of description of your roles that you had at uh, the Western Force, and what were some of the highlights and challenges of working with uh, probably the most isolated rugby professional rugby team in the world? I'd say. Yeah, we were the, the world's most travelled professional sports team wow. of any anywhere in the world. Oh, that's yeah, because eh? our closest away game was a four-hour flight away. <laughs> and several, several times we would be travelling further to our home game than our opposition were. So, oh my goodness, eh? Yeah, for those those of your listeners that don't really know um, the geography of Perth, Perth is based in the west of Australia, and um, it's closer to the uh, capital of Indonesia than it is to the capital of Australia. It's <laughs> um, a long bloody way from anywhere. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Super Rugby competition when I was doing it was comprised of five teams from South Africa, five teams from Australia, five teams from New Zealand. And, of course, that's now expanded to six teams from South Africa, five from New Zealand, five from Australia, one from Japan and one from Argentina. So it's even, it's even bigger than what it was um, when I was there. And I was there for... For two and a half years, um, and in that time we um, we had some really good success. Um, no, we didn't win the competition, but yeah. Yeah, when you consider um, the it, we've got the smallest nursery of, of any team in in the entire competition because it's not a heartland a rugby heartland team. Um, Rugby is in Australia traditionally the the east coast and specifically in New South Wales and Queensland. Um, so we don't have a huge nursery there, but we have, you know, some rusted-on fans, and and um, you know we've got um, uh, you know a terrific, terrific stadium there, and all that sort of stuff. So it was a really good, memorable couple of years that I that I spent at the force, and my role there was was very similar to what I've got here. Um, I was head of athletic performance, and I worked with S and C, sports science, um, physio, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's just that the the sport of rugby in Australia is, I would say, not even a third as big as what Australian rules is. So I've just yeah. got more staff, more resources, um, and some would say more headaches here. <laughs> um, but the 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 advantage of these resources is that you're not spread too thin. So I'm actually able to step back and take much more of a leadership role here and not be 100% operational like I was at the um, at the force where I had to be, you know, the, the lead physio and, you know, do a lot of the strength work and a lot of the strategy work and a lot of the corporate work and do all these other things, whereas now I don't have to be strapping every ankle that comes in and, and teaching squat technique to every first-year player and all those sorts of things. So um, I've got a, a much bigger staff um, that, that we're able to, to utilise here. Yeah, so that's obviously a big challenge there that um, that you mentioned with the, the force that you're, you're kind of being all things for all people and that's got to wear like the, 
the the talent thin in terms of the staff there um what what other challenges did you have like especially with the long travel and things like that how'd you how'd you cater for that how'd you what were some of the strategies you put in place for that well what what we found was that um what and i found it myself you know you you, you look forward to it in the first instance you know we're at the start of the year when you're mm. fresh that sort of stuff but then you might have a six-day turnaround into New Zealand, which is uh, a a really tough place to go and win anyway. Yeah. Let alone let alone when you've just come back from Africa, um, you're two thirds of the way through the season. You've got a six-day turnaround into a place which is east of where you are, which is harder to travel to than it is when you're travelling west. Um, and um, you're dealing with a with a five-hour time zone difference, um, plus having a, a huge flight to get there and so that there's the whole the whole thing's rigged against you in a way um, and yet you've got to do that you've got to perform on the weekend and you've also got to get some decent training load in so that you're not um, you're not getting weaker or slower or, or less fit throughout the week so there's enormous challenges not just from a um, an energy perspective, but from a player health and and I would say a staff health perspective as well. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's a an incredibly difficult um, environment to work in, but that is is part of its attraction as well. You know, you you learn a lot about the best way to travel and um, the best way to train when you're fatigued and those sorts of things. Is it ideal? Absolutely not. But do you learn a lot? Absolutely, you do. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's, that's great. That's a, that's... It must have been pretty brutal at times, and I'm sure you got some great lessons out of that. I reckon what ends up by happening is that you 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 get by to start with, but then you towards the end of the year when you actually should be wanting to be at your freshest because hopefully you're moving into finals, you're actually decaying. There's just the the accumulation of of travel and and all those sorts of things. You you almost feel like you get. Um, disproportionately jet lagged towards the end of the season. Oh, wow. Beginning. Yeah, that's difficult. All right. It, one of one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, the couple of books that you've put out. Um, the the earlier book that you put out was uh, titled High Performance Training for Sports. Um, I, I've got that book. I, I go back to that book all the time. I, I think it's amazing. Um, what what was your experiences writing that book, and what do you what do you think some of the like the the big lessons that that coaches can get out of it from from reading that book. Um, oh, it's really nice to hear um, nice words about it, Annie. Thanks for thanks for that. It's um it's actually it's a book that I constantly refer to. It's it's on my desk here at at work, and it's it's the most dog-eared book that I that I own because <laughs> I'm, I'm consistently referring to it because what we did was we tried to recruit the very best people in the world to write about their areas of expertise rather than one person writing about um, 25 different topics. We got 25 different people writing about their particular area of interest and, and expertise. So, um, you know, we, we'll have um, – we think, well, who, who's – who's one of the best guys in the world to talk about um, running technique, Franz Bosch. Okay, let's get him to write a chapter. And um, Sophia Nymphius writes about her pet topic, which is uh, agility and change of direction. And and then, you know, we'll, we'll get um, some wizards about monitoring to, to write about their stuff, Stu Cormack and Aaron Coote. So there's a, 
there's enough stuff in there so you can immediately apply it to for any coach out there um, and it's written in a way that it is immediately applicable but there's sufficient depth in there that it continually rewards repeat reading and that's why I continually go back to it even though I've been in this game for for 20 years um, there's always stuff that you, you get out of it and it's always good to have that refresher as well so um, look people seem to really like it which is fantastic for us um, not in a, a fiscal sense because we don't make any money out of no it. But <laughs> no, 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 they um, uh, they absolutely certainly don't. But um, it's it was it was great for it was great for Dan and myself that because we we got really good at at editing copy and and writing stuff of ourselves and got really good in terms of establishing and and nurturing our network um, and and relationships. Um, and we got uh, incredibly it, it well particularly for me or certainly for me it it honed my understanding of what's really important in terms of athletic performance and athletic development because you're reading these things so many times each chapter you're reading 15 20 times um, and you know it, it enables you to really uh, crystallize your thoughts about what's important in, in what you're trying to do so um, it's it's something that I'm I'm really proud of, and um, you know when I'm long gone, it's still going to be in the library if um, if libraries still exist when I'm long gone. <laughs> yeah, that's great, and um, I think that was the highlight for me was the readability of it, and yeah, exactly. I, I go back to it every every you know few weeks to, to to plan and to to think about things, and then you know you forget these concepts because it's not your specialty a lot of these areas, so you need to have that reference uh, to go back to. Yeah, we felt that that was important. There's a lot of books out there that are written by academics and whilst this is all scientifically sound, of course, um, we wanted it to be a masterclass and we wanted it to be so someone comes in and, um, you know, if they came into your organisation and you asked them about um, uh, jumping and landing, so we get Jeremy Shepherd and we go, right, well, um, what would you teach us about jumping and landing? And you don't necessarily want a lit review, you actually want principles that you can apply immediately um, and, and that's what we wanted to get in, in this and and I'm, I'm confident in myself that that's what we've delivered and, and hearing uh, experienced coaches like yourself Andy say say those sorts of things as well that's that's um, that's reward and recompense for us cool so so with that in mind um, like what what's your image of a high performance environment how do you how do you create a high performance environment? Well, yeah, I think you've got to start. You've got to start at the top in terms of um, a high performance environment. It's a it's a it's a term that's splashed around everywhere from courses to to Twitter, really. And mm. and and what's high performance um, for me might be slightly different to what it is for you. But fundamentally, high performance, whether it's in sport or healthcare or architecture. Should be defined by the culture that the organisation lives and breathes. Yeah. And, and for me, that is, you know, having a, a singular vision um, that is is clearly articulated, and you've got a group of people that are empowered to work towards that vision. Um, and and that, as I say, that goes across any type of organisation across sectors. Um, you know, we, we can talk about whether you Olympic lift or whether you do machine lifting or, or whatever, and and really that's kind of immaterial. Um, that's 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 certainly really granular. 
but that that is not going to distinguish between a high performance environment and a, a low performance environment. The things that high performance environments have got are um, real clarity of vision, accountability, um, empowerment of, of staff, and um, and uh, which is all underpinned by a, a framework of, of communication. So they're the things that you need to get right. And there's no point in me having a high-performance APU or athletic performance unit that we've got here at the Giants if the coaching team don't buy into what we do. So actually it needs to be an organisation-wide thing. And there's no point in – so at, our, at the Giants here, we've got a football department of which the APU is part of, then we've got fan, fan development, and then we'll have marketing, and then we'll have media, and then we'll have um, corporate and all those sorts of things. And um, there's no point football being high performance if we're continually let down by um, our media team. There's no point our media team being high performance if our, if our football department continually let them down by not turning up to events or, you know, those sorts of things. So really a high-performance environment is something which is characterised by an entire organisation, not just a subsection, because, um, you know, one, one individual doesn't make a difference. It is, it's, a, it's a broad, um, you know, strategy that, that must permeate the entire building. Yeah, I just I don't know if you caught it, but there was a really interesting um, blog post from uh, Faction Elite um, by by Terry Condon about high performance groups and that a lot of high performance cultures lead to low success because they're they're too focused on the outcome rather than the processes that you've just talked about. Yeah, I, I did read that, and and Tez writes some really really insightful stuff about this sort of stuff. He's incredibly incredibly knowledgeable in this area and I always enjoy reading what he uh, writes and um, but he, he's absolutely right so uh, fish rots from the head and yep. Um, yep. unless you get that side of things right and uh, a leader that has got a really strong vision and, and empowers people to work towards that um, it, it crumbles it, it really does crumble there's no point just having these amazing um, series of worker ants and, and interns and, and the like, if they don't get empowered and rewarded for their work and they don't continually get nourished so that they, they want to lift everyone around them because you're only as strong as your weakest link and, and you absolutely need the, the senior management team, the leaders to be, to be leading this. So unless they're on the same page, you've got no chance of having a high-performance organisation. That's interesting. And another concept that's going around, I don't know if, you, you saw, if you've read any of um, James Smith's ideas around, he's a strength coach in the US, and he's saying like the current hierarchy of high-performance teams, we've, we've kind of got it all wrong, that we've got the head coach of an organisation who calls all the shots, but... But actually, is that the most qualified person to be to be doing that, or should it, does it need to be a collective of people rather than one kind of person who's going to pull the trigger or not pull the trigger? Yeah, um, I, I'm not specifically familiar with with James's work, but what I would say is that that's um, he, he's not the only one to share that view. Um, traditionally, the head coach is the one that uh, that gets tasked with that responsibility because they are the senior face of an organisation usually mm -hmm. in many cases and it's, it's, it's their balls that are on the line if an organisation fails in a lot of instances. But, it, but you're right, you know, there's a lot of head coaches out there that are 
fantastic head coaches because they're fantastic head coaches, not because they are organisational change agents. Um, you know, I think the the way it runs in Australian rules is is quite different to the way it runs in rugby. The rugby is very much um, head coach dominated, mm-hmm. but in Australian rules, whilst the head coach calls a lot of shots, um, they they generally have enough humility to um, stand back and let um, people in my position call shots on, on certain aspects as well, and and the, the head coach and myself are overseen by a general manager of football, and that general manager of football is overseen by a, the, the CEO of the organisation and, and the board. But the reality is a, a high-performance team needs to have uh, a team of teams, and there's a, there's a, a terrific book by... General Stanley McChrystal, which goes into that in terms of the military hierarchy, and and it can't be a top-down approach. It has to be um, people working together towards a shared vision that have all got um, responsibility for making decisions that um, that increase the effectiveness of, of um, decision making in a complex environment. So, um, I, uh, your your description of what James would say is um, it, it pretty much echoes what I would think. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I'll have to look up that book too. Um, okay, in all your spare time then, you decided to, to write a second book or, or author or co-author a second book. I, I don't know if it was, was it co-authored, the Sports Injury Prevention and Rehab? Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty similar format to high performance. Um, yep. So um, Dan and I were, were co-editors and wrote a lot of the chapters and, and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, the... The funny thing about it was it, it actually was the first book um, and what, what basically happened was we were looking for publishers for it um, and we got down to a choice of two. We chose one and the other one said, oh, listen, we'd really like you to write a book for us. Um, so foolishly, uh, we agreed to two books at the same time, um, which is, you know, agreeing to one book at a time is foolish, um, agreeing to two at the same time is downright stupid. And, uh, but but the, um, the second book came out first. So uh, Sports Injury Prevention Rehab is what Dan and I would call book one, but it was the one that was released second. And it, it's very similar, you know, we've tried to um, provide performance-based rehab solutions for for injuries and and injury prevention so we're not trying to talk about a this is how you treat a grade two medial collateral ligament sprain but it's more these are this is what you need to do to get a knee back to the job that a knee needs to be able to perform so um a lot of sports injury books will go go back and say oh well you know, once the injury is healed, you need to do three sets of eight bodyweight squats and, you know, nonsense like that that mm. is not is not high performance. Um, and a lot of performance or sports science or strength and conditioning techs really don't understand pathology. So what we're trying to do is bridge that gap whereby we talk about injuries but we actually get them back to performance rather than just being pain-free. Yeah, and I think, I think that's probably for the, the generalist rugby coach, that's probably an area where where most people wouldn't feel uh, competent in is uh, things like injury prevention and things like recovery, and and often they'll defer it or they'll they'll just say a throwaway statement like you've got to be prepared for the season or you've got to recover well. What what what's what's some of your thoughts on that? 
Well, what we've tried to do with the book is is write it in such a way that it is applicable to coaches and to athletes mm. alike. You know, there's enough depth in there that it will um, challenge some um, you know, very well-read students of of, um, of sports science and and physiotherapy and those sorts of things. But we're, we've tried to make it as applicable to everyone as possible. Um, so a rugby coach should be able to pick it up and go, right, well, these are the fundamentals that I can see that I need to um, follow in terms of recovery or um, even if it just allows them to have a, an informed conversation with their physio or their doctor or, or whatever when it comes to um, shoulder injuries or running technique, even if it just allows them to, to read up on the topic and go, right, well, I've got a better idea. I'm not an expert, but I've got a better idea than what I was when I started the chapter. So that's that's kind of the, the spirit behind it, if you like. Um, in terms of your question into, um, regarding injury prevention, um, I, I don't think there is – there's loads of injury prevention sort of templates out there, but – None of them are particularly effective if they're not strategic and targeted towards the injuries that are most likely to occur. So you kind of need to do a um, a bit of reconnaissance to work out, well, what is it that we're actually really trying to prevent? You know, in the same way that you wouldn't do you wouldn't do a lot of flood prevention work in the Sahara Desert because that's clearly not going to be the the um, the biggest risk there. Yeah. Um, you, you know, do you do, do rowers need to spend a lot of time doing ankle injury prevention work? Probably not. Um, in a sport like rugby where you can pretty much get anything, um, you know, that's it becomes a little bit more difficult. So you need to, to drill it down by position. So we know that a prop uh, props don't tend to get hamstring injuries because they don't run fast enough. <laughs> but they, cer they certainly do get calf injuries. Yeah, so Absolutely. So yeah. your props are much better off spending spending their precious time resources. And let's face it, we're all trying to um, bargain for, for athletes' time. Um, they're better off getting most bang for their buck by by um, looking at the injuries that they're most likely to get, which in a prop is going to be a, a calf, a low back, and a shoulder and neck. So they're they're the critical things. Whereas um, low back issues don't tend to be as big a um, complaint for for anyone that plays in the back three, but they get they get your hammies, they get your hips and groins because of their kicking load. So they need to do more work in that area. So there's no sort of one size fits all thing for an injury prevention. If you do if if you're running a circuit which tries to be all things to all people, you're likely to be doing a bit of a service to a few people rather than a really good service to all the people. Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. And, yeah, it just goes to show how, how complex uh, the, the game of rugby is, how, how many little facets there are that we need to consider as, as coaches and people involved in. Yeah. One, one of the things I, I, I heard you talking about, I'm not sure what podcast it was. It might have been Ron McKeefrey's podcast, but you, you talked about um, at The Force you, you developed a, a recovery system with the guys uh, based on points uh, and they had to accumulate X amount of points in a 24-hour period past the game or a 48 period past the, past the game. I, I really I really like that idea. What, what, what were the details on that? Oh, we're just trying to make things a little bit easily digestible for, for the athletes and I'm a big believer in that uh, recovery needs to be 
uh, holistic and encompassing all the stresses that an individual will will face. And you know, it's not just the bumps and bruises for the game, but it's also the stress that they that they go under in terms of you know their performance and um, it's their financial stress or you know injury stress, all these other things. So physical stress is just one part of the overall picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so recovery therefore needs to be. Um, are holistic and and there's a there's a bit of literature out there now which says you know um, what an athlete is likely to choose in terms of their recovery is likely to be the things that's most effective for them. So what we we had a couple of non-negotiables and that was that was the sleep and we wanted eight hours sleep um, and we wanted a, a good meal because we know that sleep and 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 nourishment are the, the two cornerstones of any sort of recovery. Um, we want people back to pre-match weight within within um, 24 to 36 hours of the game. Yeah. And um, and then we had a, a basically a menu of things that they can choose from. So here at the Giants, we say there's 35 points for your um, appropriate meal post-match. There's 35 points for um, eight hours sleep, so there's your 70 points. Um, an ice bath will be worth 10, there's 80 points, and then you've got a raft of other things that you can choose. It might be a 20-minute um, cool down on a bike or it might be a, a massage or it might be um, some flexibility work and all these things are worth 10 points and they, they're actually free to choose what they want. Now, some people um, hate massage. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. I don't, I don't like um, being massaged for, for some strange reason. So all, all that would do for me is increase my stress levels and my cortisol levels if that was enforced upon me. Mm. So um, that's actually counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So I don't enforce that. Um, whereas some people absolutely love it and it's a great way for them to stress, uh, to you know, chill out. Um, and so they'll choose that. And um, you know that that's basically how we we build up our hundred points. Yeah, I think that's like people, especially if you're in like a a club rugby kind of setup. Which, let's be honest, that's where most rugby coaches are. They're in the amateur setting. I think that's a really applicable and easy easy way to 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 get at least guys doing something rather than nothing at all. Is and to get them thinking about it and talking about it is to give them that menu and and a whole bunch of options with with some structure surrounding it. Yeah, and if you get um, you give an athlete a bit of choice in how they manage their own yeah. body, likely to buy into it than if you just mandate certain things. There's a there's a there's a there's a role for mandating certain things, but not for everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, then probably the last thing on on the on your second book, when, what what some of the things a, a coach needs to be a rugby coach, especially needs to be considering when an athlete's returning from injury. What what some of the priorities they've got? Like that's a pretty general question, considering what we talked about before and the range of injuries. But what would you say are some of the priorities uh, that they need to take into account? Um, uh, the 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 three main ones are um, whether they're safe to return, so whether the tissue itself is healed. Mm-hmm. The second thing is whether they've returned to performance. So that's a functional test. So it might be getting back their, getting their, um, their ability to tackle, um, their ability to step, their ability, say if you're a hooker, for them to be able to throw in a line out, all these sorts of things. Um, and 
final thing is whether the athlete themselves feel that they're ready to go back to play. So um, that that's arguably the most critical thing. And if if there's no's to any of that, they're not ready. So if the the tissue itself hasn't healed, that's an immediate strike. They're out. If if the the um, the tissue is healed. Um, and you're confident with that, then you go to question two is, can they do their job? Um, can they sidestep at speed? Can they, can they tackle? Um, can they be tackled? Can they um, engage in a scrum? All, all these sorts of things back to their pre-injury level. Fantastic, tick, okay. If it's a no, then it's a strike. If it's a yes, then go to the, the final question, which is speaking to the, the player themselves. Listen, are you confident to do this? Are you happy to, to do this? Have you got enough um, training load under you to return to training? Mm. So, and that's, that's a really important thing too. So if someone's been out for five weeks with an elbow or so with an ankle injury, um, have they accumulated enough training load so that they're not at a risk of popping a hamstring? So, so they, they actually need to... to prove that they've done enough work for their body to be resilient, not just at the site of injury, but for their other structures that have had to be deloaded whilst they're waiting for the, the first injury to heal. Yeah, and obviously that's going to create a bit of a team effort there too with the coach and the assistant coaches and the the, the athletic therapist or physiotherapist and, and the yeah. player themselves. Yeah. All right, great. Um, well, those those two books, I, I I haven't got the second one yet, but I'm definitely going to get it. Um, I'll, I'll put those up on the website so that um, listeners can can have a look at it and access it and find out um, find out where they can pick it up. And uh, yes, mine, mine's an ebook, so I find it really really handy as well. It's just on the iPad. Is it the, is the second one an ebook as well? The sports uh, injury. They're, no, they're both. They're both physical books and virtual books. So whatever, whatever um, um, version that, that you like. I think the, the e-book's good because you can actually take it onto the gym floor and it's a bit easier on flights and stuff. But I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I like having the, the actual hard copy. So, um, yeah, the, both versions are available. All right, we always end the end the show with the same four closing questions. As, as a kid growing up, who was your who was your favourite athlete that you that you like uh, watching compete? Um, uh, look, so I, I grew up in a small country town in in Victoria in Australia where I'd never actually heard the word rugby until I was about uh, thirteen. So a lot Deprived. of my heroes, yeah, that's right. A, a lot of my heroes were. Um, were Australian rules footballers, which are, I suppose a lot of your listeners may not necessarily know. But I would say that when I started getting into rugby, listen, I, I absolutely loved um, the way John Eels played the game. Yeah, so he was yeah. second row for for the Wallabies and for Queensland. Um, and the thing that I loved about him was that he was so tough and he was, but he was so tall and yet he was uh, he was a goal kicker, you know. And he yeah, was, was fantastic. Yeah, his nickname was Nobody because yeah. nobody's perfect. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I once sat behind him at a um, at a movie in in Brisbane, and pretty much he's so big that I never saw any of the movie. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, look, he was a bit of a hero of mine. Um, and um, but in terms of who my my favourite player now would be, look, I I um I love watching Ben McCallum play because I know him as a person. He's a, he's a very good person, and yeah. I. I really admire like grit 
in in players, and he he typifies that for me. Um, but actually, the the one person that I I really love watching is Michael Hooper, who's the the flanker for the Wallabies and the Waratahs. He's an extraordinarily quick off the mark. He's tough over the ball. Um, he's as hard as nails. He's a really good leader. He's only 24, 25 years old. He's someone that I, I, I love watching play. Yeah, and I think um, tie, tie that in there with uh, David Pocock and, and having someone like McCalman coming off the bench. Um, they, they, the Australian back row is looking, looking pretty formidable right now. Yeah, and I think that the theme between all three of those is they're all back rowers and they're, they're the ones that go in and under. They're trying to peel for ball. They're the ones that won't always get the accolades. But it, when, once you get a back row working well, um, your team is incredibly difficult to beat. Yeah, and I, I like that you brought up Ben McCallum because I, I thought um, not the World Cup just gone, but the previous one, um, you know, he got played out of position a bit and I thought that was uh, he got unfairly judged because of that. But he's... he's He's coming to a real purple patch right now, and I just think he's uh, he's he's an excellent player. Yeah, no, he definitely is. He's a very good person as well. Yeah, fantastic. All right, beauty. Um, so that was my second question. Favorite current players. Now, what about um a high profile coach uh, that you that you like what they're doing and respect what they're doing? Um. Oh, look. In terms of high profile, I um I, I might take you back to my my days working in the Premier League and um, he's a name that a lot of people know if they follow if they follow soccer or follow the Premier League but it was he was the manager when I was at Blackburn Rovers a guy called Sam Allardyce and and I really respect Sam because he, he was the one that recruited me from um, into soccer and um, and and I really respect him for a couple of reasons one is that um, on my first day, he asked me what my job was, and I said, you know, I'm um, here to physio and strength coach and all that sort of stuff. And, and he said, no, your job is to make the dreams of young men come true. Mm. And so he, he took me out of being granular to um, sort of step back and go, right, well, this is actually why we're all here is to, to make the dreams of young men come true. And I think that's a really important Point. And the other thing that I really liked about him too was that he uh, uh, he had a he had a reputation of being at the forefront of sports science, and that was um, how he got portrayed in the media and all that sort of stuff. Um, and he actually wasn't, but what he was was someone that allowed people. He saw the value in it, and he allowed people to do their job. And that was a really important lesson for me was that. Um, You've got to recruit people that know what they're doing and then the job of a leader or a manager is to uh, remove all the obstacles that are in their way so that they can actually do their job properly. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of managers and, and leaders uh, are micromanagers and, and control freaks and, and in actual fact they end up by being the roadblock. Um, he was the opposite of that. Yeah, that's a great story. That's, that's really cool. Um, all right, and then last question: Who's who's maybe a grassroots coach that uh, deserves a mention? I, I suppose um, like that that answer for me is is quite clouded because I've spent the last twenty years in elite sport, and I don't actually have an awful lot to do with with grassroots sport, and that's that's more of an indictment of me more than anything. Um, it's just that's the reality of my world, which yeah. is a, a, a really small bubble. 
Um, but I would say someone is not grassroots, he's still elite, but he's, it wouldn't get all the accolades, he's not high profile, is the, the defence coach at the Western Force, a guy called Dave Vessels, who is a South African bloke who, um, the, the one thing you know about the Force is that they won't tend to score a lot of points against you, but geez, they don't leak much. Mm. And it's because of Dave's system whereby he analyses, meticulous analyst of the opposition, but he's he's got his um, he's got his defensive system that he believes in. He's stuck to. He's taught people. I've seen him. I've seen the way he can coach, and he, he's taught the the Western Force that their line when when they're on um, was virtually impregnable, um, and all of that from a guy that is probably five stone ringing wet. Um, Never played the game at an elite level, but was just a master um, strategist and understood the game so well. And that, and there's a lot of respect from there because a lot of coaches um, tried to get to where they like tried to become an elite coach because they're a really good player, um, and that doesn't always work. Whereas he's become a, like an exceptional coach because he's an exceptional coach, not because he was an exceptional player. Yeah, I, I really like that message there, and because. Um, most coaches out there weren't didn't play national rugby, but they they love what they do and work really hard at it. So that's great. I'll have to look him up for sure. Yeah, no, really, really worthwhile to follow. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks very much, David. I know you're like a really busy man, especially with the Aussie rules season just about to kick off. So um, really appreciate you finding some time to come on the show and and, and chat um, about about your books and and your time in rugby. Uh, so so thanks a lot for for coming on and and uh, having a talk. It's a great pleasure, Andy. Thanks for having me. No worries. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, mate. Bye. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, to episode number 17 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. Uh, That was a really enjoyable one for me. I've been trying to arrange that meeting with uh, David Joyce for for quite some time now. He's an extremely busy man and uh, really grateful that he could come on. Uh, And I hope you got a lot out of it. I just wanted to let you know, coming up in the next few episodes, we're going to have Tyler Leggett on, and he's going to discuss creating a private academy and how how that works and his experiences in that. Then we're also going to have Jocelyn Barrio come on. She's going to discuss coaching girls seven. Um, especially focusing on the under 18 age group. Well, then uh, future guests uh, to be confirmed, but hopefully we're going to have some people come on for some sevens conditioning uh, work and also uh, another episode on attack, uh, especially focus on sources of, of possession and uh, try scoring trends in rugby today. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, give us a, give us a rating on uh, iTunes and we'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, Keep sharing ideas to make the game better.